Shalom, and thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, the president and dean of Valley Beit Midrash. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning, bringing cutting-edge ideas and innovative and pluralistic Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and enjoy the program. So I'd like to start with that. I'm not assuming anyone's political positions here, who you voted for, anything like that, but there's a lot of uncertainty in our country right now. And uncertainty can destabilize people in some ways. And the best way to deal with that destabilization is a sense of connection with people. And I think it's very important that we connect. That's better than hiding. What? It's better than, ah, you know, hiding in the short term may feel better, but uh, long-term solution connection is a little better. So uh, connecting around a good point, I think, is very important. Um, this is a period of time where uh, many of us need to regroup, connect, lean into challenges. Um, when I was preparing these talks before last Tuesday, it was a little bit different uh, what I was going to focus on. But I think this idea of how to... Uh, how to kind of lean into challenges that the present situation is presenting us with and stay, uh, stay really connected, not rip apart, I think is, 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 is something that our spiritual traditions can really help us with. And it's the topic of my book and what I want to talk about with us tonight. Shmuley, we're going to when? How, when are we going to? 8.30 is the cutoff. Okay. So we usually reserve some Q&A at the end. Great. Okay, good. Um, I know in, in the world I occupy and I do consulting with uh, social justice organizations right now that are concerned about refugees and, uh, and vulnerable people in this country. There's a lot of terror right now. There's uh, a sense of paralysis, overwhelm. Um, hasn't happened yet, but potential for infighting between different groups that are trying to have the same agenda, but there's a lot of, a lot of desperation going on right now. And um, this is not new. This is not new. This is uh, uh, kind of anyone who's involved in work of trying to make change in the world and make things better. These are kind of things that, that are always present in some way. Um, bringing a spiritual approach and drawing on our spiritual wisdom uh, and ancient traditions into how do we deal with these, these moments like we're in right now can really produce solidarity in the fights that we have coming up. Um, I first uh, became aware of the need for these spiritual resources when, uh, as a young adult, when I was um, first really uh, politicized and made aware of um, the need to stand up and say something, if I knew something was wrong, uh, I was a member of a fraternity in, uh, in the college I went to in New York. And this fraternity, um, some of the men there did not treat women so well. And just like some of the things that we hear in the news today, were really going on there. And uh, now thankfully I wasn't involved in that, but I certainly was around it and kind of knew that things were happening. And I was dating uh, a woman during my senior year who identified herself as, as a feminist and 
would challenge me on these things. And in fact, a, uh, something happened in January of my senior year in college where there was actually a date rape case brought against someone in the fraternity. And this was under investigation. And my uh, girlfriend at the time was really pushing me to uh, do more about it. And I kept saying to her, well, they're basically good guys. Like, they're basically good guys. Yeah, they make some mistakes, but they're basically good guys. And I wouldn't really take action. And this went on the whole semester, and eventually this fraternity was kicked off the campus because the university investigated it and saw there was plenty of problems here. I was not living here at the time. I distanced myself already. But still, this was my social group. I knew these people. Um, so fast forward to the end of the semester, and I'm wearing the fraternity hat, and I go into uh, my favorite restaurant, which is a little bit of an alternative kind of restaurant. And the waitress is being very rude to me. And she's kind of slamming the plates down on the table and just being kind of rude. And I asked her at the end, I said, what's going on? Why are you being so rude to me? And she said, you wearing that hat into this restaurant is like me wearing a swastika into your restaurant if you were Jewish. I was shocked. And I was like, what? What? How can you make that comparison? And I got really angry and I left. But by the time I had uh, walked out the door and crossed the street, it hit me that, whoa, if this is this bad, if someone will make that comparison really feels that way, what was going on over at that fraternity was really bad. And I was actually complicit in it, and I didn't stand up, and I need to change my life. And I need to, if I see this wrong, I need to stand up. That started a period of a number of years for me personally that was very hectic, and I, I, everywhere I turned, I was seeing things I needed to stand up about. This was back in the, uh, the mid-1980s, um, and there was a lot of things going on that were really disturbing. And um, whether it was issues around Latin America, or nuclear war, or like all kinds of things, I was seeing that homelessness, uh, it was like I needed to get involved. And so I was getting involved in everything, and I felt like I could never rest. And to the point where um, I remember a friend of mine invited me to a baseball game, and I was sitting in the game just distraught that like, how could I be sitting in this game? There's like homeless people outside. Like what, like what am I doing? And I realized after a couple of years of this that um, this wasn't gonna sustain. And I was working on different campaigns around, around uh, fighting nuclear weapons at the time. And I, uh, I, I, I realized that I needed other resources. And it was just about that time that I began a real serious engagement with Judaism, and I hadn't been raised particularly religious. And it was in that engagement that I really found, okay, here are resources that are gonna let me stay and keep me doing this work for the rest of my life. Because I was going crazy, and I felt like there was, I, was, I, I couldn't do enough. And I felt at once both paralyzed and, um, you know, like I couldn't stop. So what are some of these spiritual resources, and what do I mean by spirituality? So one of the things that really spoke to me uh, when I first really started learning was uh, the idea of hiddenness and revealed, and how God, and a God being the um, energy and force that ties all things together and is a source of unity of everything, um, is unseen. We have an unseen God in our religion, and, you, and, and so therefore you can be really confused and forget that actually everything is connected and that there's a presence there. That's very easy. So this idea of hiddenness and the word olam. We live in a world, the universe is olam. Olam is hidden. And so that's just the name of our world. It's called hidden because God is hidden. 
And I found that very intriguing because all of the pain and darkness that I was seeing around me and the suffering I was seeing around me, that was the hiddenness. It couldn't really, where's God? I can't see God. But it doesn't mean God's not there. God's behind it. God's tying everything together. But it's a necessity. It's hidden. Why is it necessity? So there's a uh, mystical story of the creation of the world that many of you probably know. And again, this was very helpful for me when I first heard it. That God, the being that unifies everything, uh, wanted to bestow good on the world. But there was nothing to bestow good on because everything was God. So God needed to contract God's self and create a vacated space that was empty, so to speak, of God. And in that space, God then could start creating and pouring in light into vessels that were there. Those vessels, the light was too much for them, they shattered. And those shards of those vessels make up everything that exists. Make up this table, make up me, make up our thoughts, make up you. Everything are those shards, and they all contain godliness in them and, and, and sparks of light in them. But we just can't see them because they're hidden. And, but they are everywhere. And so by necessity, to facilitate creation, that we could even be here and have consciousness of me and you and us here together, we needed God to disappear. Because if godliness was so apparent, we would all be one unity and we wouldn't have any separation between us. So that's a paradox of creation, that to be able to exist, we had to have separation, but unity, if, because God is all one, there's constant unity at the same time. And the only way to solve that paradox is to make things hidden and to make that reality hidden. But you can't get it. Like your mind can't grasp it, how it actually works. But that was very useful to me because it explained why, it helped explain that even though there were men who were addicted to drugs and couldn't get off and were water veterans and had their lives destroyed and were trying to find the housing in homelessness and that's why I was working in the homeless field and they were really suffering a lot, it didn't mean that God wasn't there. It just, there was, there was a hiddenness in that suffering. And um, this is something that, that Shmuley talks about, and that really, uh, it promotes this idea that um, part, what we do in justice work is that we make the unseen seen. There are people on the margins in our communities who it's nicer not to look at and nicer not to think about that they're there. And what a lot of justice work is trying to take those people from the margins and make them seen by everyone. And almost any, uh, we can play out different examples, but almost any kind of work that's trying to make the world a better place, there's some aspect of that involved where you're trying to take something unseen. So think about trafficking, you know, and there's a lot of attention to that now around trafficking. Who wants to look at that, you know, and think that, oh, wait a minute, you mean women are being, young girls are being trafficked? Or, or in the fields in Florida uh, where there's uh, undocumented workers or documented workers who have their passports taken away, um, and then put into basically kind of slavery to work in the tomato fields. Who wants to look at that? Um, but these things are going on. And so when we're working for justice, we try to make these stories known and seen. So just like we have an unseen God, and our job in spiritual life is to try to see as much as we can in moments this God, same in justice work, we're trying to make the unseen seen. And that's really a, uh, uh, a unified practice. Okay. So there's this, there's this light, right? And there's the spark and there's this, these connections and everything's connected. Um, oppression or the mistreatment of one person or another, that adds to the obscurity of the light. That obscures the light even more. Uh, Rav Shlomo Volbe in, uh, was one of the great Muslim teachers of the, uh, passed away 12 years ago. 
he quotes Ibn Ezra, who's a 13th century commentator, says that the word uh, for cruelty in, in, in Hebrew is achzar, achzariyut, is cruelty. Achzar is cruel. The root for that word is chafzayin reish, kazar, kazar, or alaf chafzayin reish. So kizar means like a stranger. So the root of cruelty is when you estrange people, when you make someone like a stranger to you. And so if the reality, the deeper reality of spiritual life is that everything is connected and we're all connected as human beings and we all have a divine holy soul, when we obscure that and treat someone as if they are not connected to us and they're not a divine holy soul, that is cruel. And that opens the grounds, actually, I would say it creates the conditions for cruelty. It might not be cruel itself. It creates the conditions for cruelty. And we know that. We know that dehumanization is the tactic that oppressive regimes use so they can then mistreat people more and more. And that dehumanization, dehumanize, we're making someone stranger. We're saying you're not like me. You're not the same as me. The Nazis perfected that. Uh, but lots of regimes use that, those kind of tactics. And, and so that process is that. Now, you have the Nazis, you have these evil regimes do this kind of stuff. I say we also do. Good people all over the world do this as well. We do it in our, our daily lives. When we act on feelings of scarcity, when we um, try to you know, step on someone else to promote ourselves, uh, when these kind of things we do in daily life also contribute to this kind of thing. And certainly in the social justice world I've worked in, I see plenty of that where you can have a real champion for the you know, rights of undocumented workers treat his own workers in his agency really badly and you know, overwork them, not, you know, they have to you know, take off some time, really give them a hard time if, if, if you want to do any self-care. Like that goes on and all of us know that. That kind of stuff goes on. So in little ways, when we do those kind of things, we're also obscuring the light and we're estranging. So no one's really completely uh, free, you know, from doing this. Um, so what do we do? What's the, what, how, do we, how do we kind of remember and get past the hiddenness that obscures these connections that really connect us all? The good news is that we don't have to change anything essential about ourselves. We are all divine holy souls. Every single person, uh, no matter who you are, has a divine holy soul. And so that doesn't have to change. That's really who our essential selves are. Now, we get a lot of crud that's built on top of that, that we need to kind of pull away and work. And that's the work of self-improvement. But on an essential level, and I find this very hopeful, that there's really nothing essential that needs to change about us. Um, but I think we need to do, and I'm talking now, uh, you know, for myself, someone who's really trying to work uh, with other people to, um, uh, you know, protect the vulnerable. Uh, I think as a Jewish community, there's things that we need to be very aware of right now and, and really have good ally relationships with all kinds of other people um, because we're seeing a rise of anti-Semitism. Um, so what I'm trying to do in that work is to do it in the most soulful way possible, really connect to my own divine holy soul and see that in other people. And I think the more we can do that, the more we can access and be soulful people and access our own souls, the better we're going to be able to see this hiddenness and this hidden light in others. Um, and the path to do this is often done in adversity and through leaning into the challenges in life. 
You know, I was, uh, I was looking at my book the other day um, after the election, and the book is filled with, and I'm going to go over some of those things right now, but a lot of teachings from the Musar tradition, Musar being the uh, school of ethical development uh, in Judaism, and the Hasidic traditions, the 300-year-old uh, Jewish renewal movement. And I was realizing that most of these teachings come out of adversity. The Jewish community has lived under oppressive governments, you know, for our, basically our whole, you know, time. You know, for, for at least the last 2,200 years or 2,000 years. And that's where a lot of these teachings and practices were developed. So um, it is in adversity that most of this growth happens. So I think we're in, uh, we're not in a bad place right now, uh, for growth at least. Um, so I want to talk about uh, the path and how to do this. So what I just laid out was this idea of hiddenness and that there is a connection and a unity behind that hiddenness. And the way we access that is through really uh, connecting to our own souls and our spaciousness and our soulfulness is the best way to connect to that and see it in others. So the, uh, in the book, and I'm going to run through uh, the different practices that are in there, are a way to do this, a path to do this while working on trying to make the world a better place in whatever the ways you're doing that, whatever issues you are drawn to. Um, the first of those is identifying our deep motivation something called ratzon. God created the world out of a ratzon, a desire to be able to give and give to others. We also have deep desire, or what we call ratzon. Ratzon in Hebrew, uh, from the word ratz, to run. Uh, we run after that which we really want. And so part of this work is identifying what, what moves my soul, what really is uh, a deep, um, deep motivation that I have. And one of the ways that we identify that and find it is when we lean into obstacles and lean into challenges and adversity. Rabbi Nachman has a teaching, and this is the first teaching on the sheet. I'm not going to go through all of these teachings on here. Therefore, you can take them home. But Rabbi Nachman has a teaching here about um, clarifying our atzon, our deep desire. And he starts the teaching uh, with a quote from, and again, Rabbi Nachman Breslov, a uh, Hasidic teacher, uh, lived, uh, I think it was 1778 to 1812, somewhere in that range and uh, was the grandson, the great-grandson of the founder of the Hasidic movement, which is the movement of uh, bringing joy and more spirituality into Judaism. So he quotes from the Torah, this is the, on page one, he says that, um, and the people stood afar, and Moshe approached the thick darkness, which was where God was. Um, and this is right after the, uh, the Ten Commandments, the people all got really scared, and they said, ah, you know, we can't hear God anymore. Moshe, Moses, you go and talk to God. And there was this big cloud on the uh, mountain, and the people, you know, thought maybe, I don't know what they thought, but God didn't look like all nice rainbow. God, it was a very scary fire in this dark cloud. And Moses had said, approach the thick darkness, which is where God was. Asher Shama Elohim. Rabbi Nachman then goes on and writes that um, when one spends all his days concerned with non spiritual pursuits and afterwards is aroused and wants to walk in the ways of God, so he's saying that someone who's trying to become more spiritual, the attribute of judgment argues against him and does not want to let him walk in the ways of God. It prepares for him an obstacle. So again, this is the hiddenness. The person was inspired and wants to kind of become more spiritual. And Rabbi Nachman is saying, when you want to do that, sometimes there's an obstacle. It's not so easy. And that obstacle can be your own thoughts, your own self-criticism, like, who am I? I was just... 
you know, doing these things and now I'm trying to be more spiritual. You can really get hard on yourself. That could be the obstacle. It could be other people saying to you, you know, who are you? You think you're going to like start praying? You think you're going to do these things? So there's a lot of possible obstacles. And then Rabbi Nachman says that Hashem, God loves chesed, which is kindness. And so God hides God's self, so to speak, within the obstacle. And someone who is wise will be able to look into the obstacle and find the creator in it. So um, he's saying that, and the Hebrew word is important. He says, Mishu bardat, someone who's a bardat, which means a, you know, a thoughtful, conscious person. But dat is an important word here. Dat means is relational knowledge. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's really knowing something in an embodied way and also knowing it because you're really connected to other people. It's not just an intellectual, abstract kind of knowledge. And I'm not going to learn the whole thing here, but basically the idea is that Moses was that, the epitome of that kind of knowledge. And so he was able to walk into the fog and the darkness, which was like an obstacle, and he was able to find God in that place. Asher Sham Elohim. God was in that darkness. Rabbi Nachman's teaching is that when something is scary and in front of you and seems like it's, it's blocking kind of where you want to go or what you want to do is getting in your way, he's saying that the spiritual move is not to run away from it. The spiritual move is to lean into it and kind of go into it. But you have to be a bardat. You have to be the kind of person that is connected and has relationships and is, has a certain kind of uh, uh, knowing that's really connected. And when you do that, when you have that, and you can go into that darkness from that place of relationships, you can find God in that place. You can find what you're looking for in that place. And that's where we really clarify what it is we really care about, what it is we're fighting for. So I say we are presented with an opportunity right now in this country to lean into those places. What's scaring you? you know? What is something that's scaring you? And what can you lean into? That's actually not rhetorical. Let me hear from someone. What's something that you're scared of right now? Yeah. Well, I have a couple of things, but one is the whole thing around anti-Semitism, mm-hmm. that from the non-Jewish world, you're seeing Jews arguing over whether this is anti-Semitism. You know, Dershowitz is saying, no, they're mm-hmm. religious, and this one's saying, mm-hmm. yeah. And so I find that disconcerting, that, um, that people should be able to have a way to deny what's going on, so my issue was, this is not just really anti-Semitism, this is about isms. Not that we shouldn't get stuck in the anti-Semitic piece, but in the piece of somebody being so biased and encouraging that. But I'm, I'm finding that frustrating. So you're finding the frustrating, the, is it the, the frustrating part is the over-concern about anti-Semitism to the, uh, to the exclusion of more broader isms. That is, but also, um, you know, there's always going to be dissension within
So, this, I, I, so to, to just to bring it back to this, I, we, there's probably two or three things you just said there that we could look at. But let's just take any one of them. So why don't we take uh, just kind of Jewish infighting about uh, what anti-Semitism is or not, or is it not? And that, that can seem like an obstacle. It can seem like it's just a place where we're not doing ourselves any favors, you know, to the outside world or to ourselves. So a way that applying this teaching, I think, in that would be where you would, with other people, uh, address that, like not turn away from it, but maybe maybe organize a forum at, at a synagogue to talk about it, or write something into a paper about it. Right. So it would be finding, again, but it would be, again, but doing it with other people, again, so it's connected, it's not just on our own, that's very important, and really addressing that issue. And, and as you're addressing that issue, identifying why you care about it so much, like what is it about this? What is it about this that really moves me and really is, is important to me? And it could be protection of Jews, you know? It could be because I want people to focus on how connected we are to other isms and, and really fight racism and sexism as well as anti-Semitism, these kind of things. Um, but that comes about by really focusing on the issue and keeping moving, keeping moving towards it. Um, we, can, we can identify those things that really matter to us. But we got to keep digging and keep like looking, like why do I care so much about this? Why do I care so much about this? Why do I care? And keep asking that question in those areas. Yeah, sir. Um, I think all of us are, are struggling with and understanding concerns of spirituality and social change in this country. Mm -hmm. But from a distance and having family in Israel, I, I'm wondering if there's moving away from spirituality and social justice as a, as a country and politics. If you see that happening there as well, where, where things, I don't know. In Israel, I think uh, um, things uh, play out a little bit differently there. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think that, uh, you know, in 2011, there was a major social justice movement in Israel. Uh, you, you know, you had the social protest movement that got the equivalent of you know, 10 million people coming to something here in the United States. I mean, it was like huge numbers of people were turning out for things, and there was a big concern about it. So I don't think, I think a concern for social justice is very alive in Israel. Uh, I think religion and spirituality is more complicated in Israel uh, because of the orthodox um, uh, hegemony uh, over religious life in the state of Israel. Um, that produces a lot of negative things, and, uh, and, and that people feel forced, you know, into and coerced uh, by religion around marriage, around other things, that produces a lot of negative feelings about religion. And then that blocks, that gets in the way of people being able to access the wisdom and, and nourishment that Judaism has. But I don't get the feeling that Bibi and his government and their approach is, 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 is spiritual at all, almost. <laughs> Well, they are spiritual. I mean, almost cynical in a way. Well, I mean, Bibi Netanyahu is a he's a secular politician. He's a secular and secular politician, so he's not, you know, speaking from a spiritual place at all. He has certain people around his government that are religious. Social change and responsibility, that side of spirituality, as opposed to the secular Haredi. No, that does not seem to be a concern of his government you know, to, to be bringing those things together in, in any way. So, unfortunately, I don't see it there. I think it's, it's happening somewhere more around the margins. Uh, but no, it's not, it's not happening right in the mainstream of Israeli life right now.
Yeah, I think there needs to be a place for it, certainly, but it's not happening there. Okay, um, so I want to go on, but that's, this is one area of developing our, our deep motivation uh, is, is, is something we can get from engaging with the challenges that, that are in front of us, and we have a big opportunity to do that. Um, others are, another practice is taking our, our egos, uh, it's called the Yetzer, the Yetzer Hara, and the part that's very me-oriented, wants instant gratification, and taking that and orienting it toward the we. How do you take that energy and, and actually use it to move something forward as a group and as a collective? And so that's another practice that we can take on. Um, another is, uh, uh, so we started off with finding the good points in yourself and others. So that's, a, uh, that's another practice that can really be a social justice practice. And if we can look at uh, page two, again, there's Rabbi Nachman again. He says at the bottom, no, a person must judge everyone favorably, even someone who is completely wicked. It is necessary to search and find in him some modicum of good, that in that little bit he is not wicked. And by finding in him a modicum of good and judging him favorably, one genuinely elevates him on the scale of merit and can bring him to tshuva. Okay, so that's like a pretty hard practice. Rabbi Nachman is starting with an extreme, saying someone who's completely wicked. You can even find a good point. So I think what he means by that is that in most people who aren't completely wicked, you can find good points in them. And the amazing thing in this teaching is that he's not saying you have to even tell them. It's just by you observing that there's something good in this person, something happens in kind of an invisible lines of connection that go between us that can shift something from someone else. And we know this. We know that in mirroring and in, in, in things, the way people, their body stands, other things to each other, can have an impact on the other person. In uh, Proverbs, we say that the, uh, just like a face in the water reflects, so a heart of one person reflects in the other person. So the way you approach someone and the energy you put out to them has an impact. So the practice of finding these good points is really seeing, like especially someone who maybe annoys you. And again, here I want to talk about if we're trying to work together with other people on something we really care about, whether it's protecting undocumented immigrants or other, whatever things, or anti-Semitism we're taking on, whatever it is, the people we're trying to do that with are going to annoy us in some ways too. Just people do, we get annoyed. So if we could find these good points and really make that a practice, in the people that we're trying to ally with and as being a team with, it, it shifts things. It can really shift things for people. And Rabbi Nachman goes on, he says that you also need to do this for yourself. And you have to find those good points in yourself and where you, you know, may feel kind of down. And uh, that also gives you a sense of joy. And again, if you're down by what's going on in the country right now, this is a very, very important practice to do, is to keep finding those good points, both in the people that are around you but also in, in, in yourself as well. And, a, um, and, and if you do this, Rabbi Nachman goes on and he says, if you look at the, uh, um, the last paragraph here, he says, um, or the second last, he says, therefore, by not letting himself fall, but reviving himself by searching and seeking until he finds in himself some good points, gathering and separating those good points from the darkness and the impurity within him, through this melodies are made. Then he's able to pray and sing and give praise to God. So, not like by finding this, and, and you probably can tell, like, when you find something that really moves you and like about that's good about yourself, you're all happy, you can feel like you want to sing. I mean, I've never really broke out in song 
so much in my life, but like, they, like I have felt that at moments. When something moves, I'm like, ah. You know, we see that in movies when people start breaking out and singing. But there's some way of finding something that you actually really feel good about in yourself that can move you. One of my teachers, Rokhaim Kramer, tells a story. He's the uh, founder of the Bressel Research Institute uh, uh, that, that popularizes the teaching of Rabbi Nachman and translates into English. <coughs> he tells a story about this practice where he was, um, he was about to go to the mikvah, uh, the ritual bath, uh, before one of the Jewish holidays. And he wanted to find a good point about himself before he dunked in uh, into the mikvah. And he couldn't. He was like, just he couldn't. And, and I, I certainly had this, you know, when you just you can't, you're not feeling good about yourself. Um, you can't find anything. And then he thought of a story, he thought of a Hasidic story about a guy who uh, was poor in Eastern Europe back a long time ago and uh, it was coming up to Sukkot and he had just come into some money. Um, his, uh, uh, I can't remember how it worked, whether he, um, his son was marrying someone or he married his daughters off. But one of the ways where you get money from the other family, he, he just got a bunch of money and he was going to buy a really nice etrog for Sukkot, right, the, the citrus, uh, citron he was going to get for, for Sukkot. And in Eastern Europe, back in the day, that was pretty rare to be able to get that. They didn't grow those so much. So he was, he was really excited about it. So he goes to the market, he's about to buy it, and these two big guys come over to him, and they say to him, you know, we just came into town, uh, we have no place to go for Sukkot for the holiday, can you have us, can you host us? And he says to them, uh, uh, he hosts a minute, and they says, yeah, sure, come on, come over. But he thinks, you know, all the money I was going to spend on this etrog, I now have to spend on food for these two big guys. So anyway, fast forward, it's now Sukkot, he's sitting there in the sukkah, they have the dinner, and the guys notice he's looking kind of sad. And they say to him, what's going on? What's, why are you sad? It's Sukkot, it's a holiday. And he says, you know, I'm very happy you're here and I get to host you, but, you know, all the money I spent on food for you guys, I was going to buy an etrog and I really wanted that etrog. And they say to him, look, take our etrog, here. You can have an etrog. Now you have an etrog. The reward you're going to get in heaven for feeding two big guys like us, we are so much heavier. That's such a bigger reward than you're going to get for a teeny little etrog. And Rav Chaim thought of this story as he was standing there. And he thought of all the paper and the weight of all the paper, of all the pages that he's translated, Rabbi Nachman's teachings into English and published and sent out to the world, is so heavy that that's a really good point. And that he, he felt so happy at that moment, and he dunked into the mikveh. That's what I call a high-quality good point. If you can find this kind of thing about yourself that it, it really like, lights you up, and you can feel it and lights you up, that's what Rabbi Nachman's talking about. Then you are able to make melodies and you're able to sing. And he goes on and he says, one who is able to make these melodies, who's able to collect the good points that exist in each and every Jew, even the wicked, is able to lead the public prayer. And it's called the shlich tzibur, the leader of prayer. This person is sent from the tzibor, the public. That is, they collected every good point that exists in each person praying, and all these good points are collected in them, and this person stands and prays with all this good. So it's a beautiful, beautiful practice of, um, if, uh, for a prayer leader to look around at all the congregants, and this is a Bressel practice, and try to see a good point in them. And uh, I was saying the other day that it's easier if you know people because you can tell their good points, and the other person said it's easier if you don't know them. But... Uh, <laughs> Still, you're, you're looking around, you're trying to notice uh, what is something good about each person. That then becomes your prayer, comes from that place, your song comes from that place. Now, 
This is a, uh, uh, I've tried this out as a social justice practice that I think is very uh, powerful and I think has a lot of potential. Um, you, we can do this with a group of people. Say we're going to do something together, whether we're, we're going to uh, talk to a, um, you know, I don't know if people are involved with the Coalition for Immokalee Workers, which has been uh, uh, trying to get a raise in the, um, the wages of the farm workers in, in Florida who working in the tomato fields in very, very low wage. And so they get uh, restaurants and, and fast food chains to sign on to, um, to that they'll raise their price a penny a pound for uh, tomatoes. And that money then gets forwarded to the workers. And it's been a very successful campaign so far. Um, but there are certain restaurants. So right now Wendy's has, is holding out. It's not part of it. Taco Bell, McDonald's, Burger King, they've all signed on to it. Wendy's is not. So one of the things we've done uh, as part of this is get a group of people and go to Wendy's, go to your local Wendy's and you talk to the manager and say, we really want, we're here, we really want to see them sign on. Can you pass this letter on to your you know, supervisors? That, that was a whole campaign. So one of the things to do with this practice, making, taking the spiritual practice into social justice work, is do that with your group. So you're getting together with your group to go over there. Find a good point in each other when you're going. And that, finding those good points ties you together in a different way. So when you're going to talk to this manager, first of all, you're probably less scared because you've now like really connected with your fellow people you're going there with. And you've lifted yourselves up in a way. You're not coming from, you know, maybe it's like this angry place or something, but there's something more positive that you're bringing, positive energy. And it's a way of keeping a group together, especially if that manager is going to start yelling at you or, you know, you're going to get some pushback. It's a way of keeping a group, making a group strong. Um, well, he was being honest, you know, he's being honest, and the guys, but they were great. They didn't get... Well, they were, uh, they, they, they seemed generous about it. They were, trying to, they were trying to lift them up, and he gave them a good meal. Another way that, uh, that we've tried this out is, um, is in a protest situation where uh, we were, I, was, I was with a group, at the, we were at the, uh, the Senate buildings in Washington, and they were having a campaign there uh, called the Fight for 15 campaign, which uh, I'm not sure if that's out here also, uh, but to get the minimum wage raised to $15 an hour. And the, in the Dirksen Senate building, they hadn't done that, whereas over on the House side, they had done it in Washington. And so there was a uh, protest that during the lunch period, uh, some of the workers were going to get up with these signs and say, we're chanting 15, we fight for 15. And the group that was there uh, was all going to get up and march with them. So what we did was we started doing this practice while uh, the campaign was starting and while we were all getting up and marching around was seeing the good point in every person who was in that room, seeing the good point in the police who were coming to break it up, the good point in some of the other people who were sitting there who weren't part of the protest at all, and really seeing that as one big congregation. And again, you, bringing in these spiritual ideas and spiritual practices to try to raise up the social justice action, so it was infused with more soulfulness and more, more spirituality. And I know the people who did this and practiced it really a sense that it helped things move along in a way, in a well, in a place that people could have gotten really scared when we were there. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. I certainly am. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. 
that's just that's this is one practice, another practice that uh, that we could bring into our work. Um, another is uh, um, choosing against is called the the choice point, where in our spiritual lives we are we are confronted at points where we have a choice between our lower instincts that are pulling us towards fear or uh, or habit and where we can really act on our best, you know, who we think our best selves are. And that's called the choice point. And every time we act against that lower instinct, we are revealing our divine image. As I said before, we all have a holy divine image, but we don't manifest it all the time. We have, uh, Rabbi, uh, one of my teachers, Rabbi David Lappin, says that you know, most of our lives are lived out of habit in a robotic kind of way. Um, we're not showing our true divine selves when we live that way. But when we can actually choose in moments where we're really feeling pulled one way to uh, maybe to you know, yell at someone or shut down or something, and we can act on that higher level, we've now revealed our divine image. We brought more godliness into the world. So that's another spiritual practice. Again, these are all different chapters in the book, but that's, that's a whole practice we can bring through activism. We have, uh, we have Midot. Actually, let me just stop there and see if there's comments or questions at this point. Yeah. I think what you're saying some, rather than in the little practices, is that the, um, the phenomenon of making yourself strange, if you, if you reverse it in these ways, you're becoming more familiar and you're, become, you're recognizing the spark of, of divinity yeah. in the others. Yeah. And it's, it's the flip side of that, what was the word, uh, Achazar? Achazar, right, cruelty. Right. right. Right, I think you are, and I think that's what a lot of these are all doing, is they're getting you to, uh, to see yourself in the other, or the other in yourself. And right, and that, that, that moves away the hiddenness between you, and shows those lines of connection. Yep. Yeah. Other, yeah. I guess in your opinion, I was wondering, with social justice um, and spirituality together, what is your opinion on coming together I think it depends on what you're trying to do. Uh, I don't think there's anything non-spiritual about a protest or a demonstration. It depends on what the, what the strategy is you're trying to do. So kind of public demonstrations or protests can be very useful. In that, just to give an example, if we want to look at um, marriage equality, which is now the law of the land, Supreme Court decided, like you, know, you can't have discrimination around uh, uh, <coughs> same-sex marriages. So that was, that, that was achieved through a 40 to 50 year process, maybe even 70 year process, of people doing different kinds of actions at different kinds of times. And demonstrations or protests were part of that. They weren't only one piece of it, they were part of it. And if you look at um, Justice Kennedy's decision in the marriage equality um, uh, decision in 2015, uh, he says, and he credits there, and he says that the accumulation of of, of, of court cases and of uh, things that were happening in, in, in public life and media and, and propositions on state ballots and all these kind of things accumulated to such a point that this was where the society was at this point. 
Whereas, and it was time for the Supreme Court to decide that now is the time to make it the law of the land. Whereas in 1996, or some other point, when the Defense of Marriage Act was passed, uh, saying that no, it made the law of the land, that same-sex marriage was illegal, you couldn't have it, the society wasn't there yet. There hadn't been enough demonstrations, and there hadn't been enough propositions on state ballots for this kind of thing. So I was talking about this idea of the choice point before, uh, where we have individual choice points to push us. Societies and organizations have choice points as well. So American society, again, the choice point is only where there's a live choice, where you're really there and, and saying, I can see that this is uh, true or I'm being pulled by habit. So in 1996, Having marriage equality that gay people can marry across the country, being all the land, was not a choice point. It was way too far out of the awareness of most Americans to make that a choice point for the society. So, if you remember back in the beginning of the Clinton, for the Clinton administration, the best they could do at that point was don't ask, don't tell in the military. That's where the society was at that point. It's like the choice point was okay, do we investigate? people as far as their sexual orientation in the military and, and kick them out or not. And they decided, okay, we won't. And that was the choice point. But marriage equality, no way. So through demonstrations, propositions, the choice point moved and, and more people coming out. The choice point of the society moved to where it got to the point where Justice Kennedy could say, we're now ready to make this the law of the land. Okay? So I think if that's the strategy, to try to raise the awareness of a collective about an idea that might be not in their awareness yet and not a choice point, then a demonstration is a very spiritual act. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess it, it, something that comes to mind is, is in essence, like in Barishi, it says that God created mankind in his image. And you said that the Olam was created by that absence of Hashem. And it was just like him then bringing in parts of himself that created the, 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 the universe, created mm -hmm. the world. And um, we being then in his image, then by inclusion and plurality, we then in essence invoke the spirit of Hashem. Very much. That's beautifully said. Yeah. I think so. I mean, I think that's why Rav Cook talks about this as well. I think that's why plurality and including as many different parts of, of, of the human and, and non-human experience in our awareness increases awareness of God. And, and why I think biodiversity is, is uh, you know, very important to an awareness of God. Absolutely. Yep. And, and then making more and more of those parts seen makes us be able to see God more. Yeah, very much. Yeah. Oh, well, I think it's, I think, Rabbi Nachman, when he's talking about it, he's talking about it as you're seeing a lot of bad. I mean, he's not, and I agree with you, if all you're doing is seeing good, and not that, that's probably not so useful. He's talking about a situation where it's all bad, and you're trying to find some light in there and see it. Um, and so then it's a, it's a contradiction. It kind of, it, 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 it um, shifts some of the, like when you're seeing all bad, you feel very stuck. And so seeing that good kind of shifts it and makes things move. Um, I'm trying to think, Dershowitz's letter about Bannon, 
I don't know. I, you know, I, I, I think, you know, maybe in a way, if you want to apply this, there was all this bad and all this dark being said about Benin, and so Dershowitz was trying to point out the good points. Um, but, you know, my personal opinion is I think he left out too much of the bad there, you know, and, and you have to also see the dark too. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure how to answer that exactly. Yeah. That is seeing the good points in Dershowitz. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we want to, we want to, I mean, what, part of the, the, that teaching is what's something called in Hebrew, Dan Mekavzchut, which means uh, judging favorably. And uh, that is actually a very core Jewish practice to try to judge favorably when you don't have evidence to the opposite otherwise. If you have lots of evidence otherwise, then you don't want to be naive and stupid about it. And I think that's where people with Bannon are arguing about around that. Uh, good. Okay. Other? Any other? Before I move on. Okay. Good. I'm glad you asked that question about demonstrations. I think that's like a very important. It is. That really is a spiritual, uh, a spiritual practice. The next piece I want to talk about is, uh, is, is what we do in Musar, uh, the Jewish ethical development of the Midot. We all have character traits uh, or what uh, my... Uh, one of my teachers and, and colleagues, Alan Marinus, calls a soul curriculum. We all have an individualized soul curriculum made up of different kind of character traits, whether it's humility, patience, trust, all these different things, like our personality traits, basically. And we're in this world to develop those. And we're given different tests at different times to develop these. Being engaged in the work of social justice and social change will push up against us up against places where we're really going to need to develop them. And they're going to show us where we need to develop them. And so uh, four of the traits that I have in the book are humility, uh, patience, uh, dignity, and, um, and trust. And the way some of these work are, uh, for humility, for instance, um, and then if you look on page four, this is actually this week's Parsha. A key, a key aspect of humility uh, in, a, in a Torah understanding of it is uh, if you look in, um, on page four at the top from the Parsha, from the story of the binding of Isaac. Uh, it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to Abraham, uh, Abraham, he said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am, or hineni. And the commentators say on that, Rashi says, what does hineni, this word here I am, mean? He says, it's what the righteous uh, answer, and it's, it's, it's a, uh, a word for anava, for humility. Anava means humility. So it's one of the ways we express humility is by saying, hineni, here I am. I'm ready. I'm service. Here I am to serve you. How is that humility? How do you, how do you see that as an act of humility to say, hineni, here I am? Mm -hmm. And what's humble about that? Um, they're to serve. They're to answer God's call without question. Mm -hmm. Okay, so no questioning. Don't want to build on that. I think maybe part of it is that it's you are. You may have had a whole other agenda planned for that day. And you're going to say, okay, you know what, I'm going to put that aside. I'm going to put my stuff aside, and I'm going to show up here for what's needed, what I'm being called on at that moment. There's something humble about that, saying it's not all about me and all about what I want to do on my plan. There's something I'm being called on. 
Um, again, this is going to show up a lot. I think we're all being called on in some way in, uh, in this, what's happening right now in our country. And we have to figure out, what's, what am I being called on for? You know, what specifically am I being called on for? Because there's going to be a lot of needs. I don't know if, if you're anything like me, but like, there's been, you know, like every day, like 10 actions to take about this or that or this or that, you know, to try to get ready for the new government. And uh, you have to really check in. Okay, he nay he nay which way am I being called uh, to do? What's specific to me? And that's going to have to do with your gifts, with your, you know, what, what you have to offer, all those kind of things. But asking that question, he nay okay, God, I'm ready. Here I am. I'm ready to do it. In what way am I really uh, here to respond to? What is the call? What is the call that I'm actually, that I'm actually getting right now? And that's an act of humility. So we work on that midah. That's a midah we can work on in our, in our social justice work. I yeah. have a question about Hineni, though. But yeah. the way he said it and what, what ended up transpiring, mm -hmm. he had no protest. He, he did it. He went blindly and whatnot. He, well. he wasn't, he, in essence, he wasn't there. He was there physically, and he was going forward with what? Shem wanted him to do, mm -hmm. but he didn't really say, well, you know, let's, let's talk about this. Let's... Uh -huh. Yeah, it was, uh, and what he was being asked, but he didn't even know what he was going to do yet, right? It wasn't even asked, like, you have to sacrifice him. He says, Hineni. He's just saying, here I am, God, I'm, I'm with you. Um, now, he says, Hineni, two other times in the story. Uh, once to Yitzhak, and then again to, uh, um, to, to the angel of God that comes later. So, Hineni, I think, also implies a flexibility, because later in the story, when he's about to sacrifice Isaac, um, the angel calls out and says, Avram, and he says, Hineni, and he's able to change course right there, which, thank God, I mean, you, but, but he's, it's, I think does apply, like, okay, I am here, I am ready to do what's needed in the moment, at this particular moment. Um, there are major theological challenges with this story of why Avram didn't argue uh, there with that. But I think the Hineni piece is saying that, um, Okay, I'm ready to go. Now, I think maybe you're bringing a critique that you need to be a little more maybe critical sometimes and being ready to go. True, true. We don't want to be blind about it. Um, but again, this is one of, the, one of the soul traits we can work on in our social justice work. Um, another is, as I said, was anger and forbearance. That, you know, probably a lot of people feel a lot of anger right now. And anger um, is, a, uh, is a very important emotion to cultivate. Uh, but we have a difference between hot anger and cold anger. And hot anger being a kind of a rage where you really just like, you're not very effective there. You just want to break things. And I've had that experience this last week. <laughs> I broke my table the other day. And my voice is a little cracky because I was <laughs> screaming so much. Um, and that's not such a useful, uh, useful place to be. But, you know, we get there sometimes. But that's not where you're going to do social justice work from that place. You're going to do social justice work from cold anger. And cold anger is an anger that's connected to grief that is actually experiences of grief where you're able to, to notice that grieve over what needs to be grieved over and then move forward uh, and try to make change. And I'm going to give you a practice in a minute about that. It's important to analyze. Hmm? First to analyze why you are angry. If you are right or you are wrong, also. Sure, right. You might be, it might be some misplaced reason. Absolutely, yeah. Sure, you want to be thinking about it. What's the reason for this? And I'm going to give you a practice in a minute that's related, to, uh, that's related to anger and, how do you, and what's something to do there. So I'm not going to give you that right now. Um, another trait is uh, dignity. We call kavod, uh, which is really, I think, probably the most important. When we talk about seeing the unseen, what we're doing is that's actually a dignified thing. When, you can, when someone can be seen, 
that hasn't been seen before, that hasn't been cared about, hasn't been noticed, that's an act of dignity. And um, it's very important in this work to cultivate what's something called inner dignity, because you're going to get attacked. If you really get out there, and you're really putting yourself out there for a cause, someone's going to push back, and you're, and, and you're going to get some pushback on that. And so to really know your own dignity uh, strongly from the inside is going to be essential. Um, and I'll tell you a story about a guy named uh, James Kofi Annan, who really symbolizes for me. James is a, a Ghanaian, and in this area of Ghana where he lived, and I, I visited there with the American Jewish World Service on a rabbinic delegation, in this area where he lives, it's called Sankur, which is very poor, he, um, the, the, the fishing industry right near there, and the fishermen will come to this town and will, um, for $50, will buy children who are around six years old to work on their fishing boats with them uh, because, it's, because they have small fingers, because they're young, they can untangle fishing nets, and they're very useful for the fishermen. And so James was a boy in this town, and his parents sold him to one of these fishermen. And I think the parents, um, they're very, very poor. They can't educate them. They uh, very hard time feeding them. So I think they um, convince themselves that they're helping the child. They're going to give him a trade, and he'll at least be somewhere who'll have some food. But they're really selling him into slavery. So James was sold as a slave to these fishing boats and tried to escape a number of times, was beaten. Eventually, when he was 13, he escaped. And he came back to his town, and he was rejected by everyone. He was rejected by his parents, rejected by the whole community. I think it was a shame. It, they were shamed by this whole thing. And he ended up living on the outskirts of the town and put himself through high school, using some of his fishing skills, but also eating mangoes and coconuts from the trees. And he made it all the way through high school. He got to college. He ended up getting a job at Barclays Bank, became a manager at Barclays Bank, became very successful there. And in his mid-30s, late 30s, decided that he wanted to go back to his community and he wanted to end child slavery there. And he went back and started just with one child. He went, got that child out of slavery, another child, another child, another child, set up a school called Challenging Heights in his hometown, where he grew up and was rejected, and now has 800 children in it. Uh, 400 of whom have been saved from slavery, and other 400 of whom are from this neighborhood at risk of being sold into slavery. So this guy's a real hero. When he tells his story, what's amazing to me about it was that he says that why he was able to do everything he did and come back to his town and be able to keep going is because that he never believed that he was a slave. He knew that it was wrong. Even as a six, seven, eight-year-old, he knew that this whole setup was wrong. He wasn't, and then we know that that's like one of the worst things that happens in slavery and any oppression is that you internalize the oppression. And that's the whole story why the Israelites needed 40 years in the desert, because they internalized the slave mentality. He did not do that somehow. And he never, he always knew that he was a dignified, free person, even if he was living under slavery his whole way. That is what we mean by inner kavod, inner dignity. You have such a sense of you being a divine, holy soul, that nothing can shake you off of that. It's very rare to be able to uh, do that in those circumstances, but people do do it, and it's an amazing thing. And I think in this kind of work, in the social justice work, uh, the more we can cultivate that, <clears throat> the more powerful we're going to be, and to not get thrown off by the attacks that are inevitably going to come our way. Um, in the Breslov tradition, there's a story, and in, 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 in the, the, that Hasidic movement was attacked all the time by other Hasidic groups who would turn them into the, 
the, the czar and the Russian officials. There's a lot of, we talk about the infighting, we talk about Jews, you know, not deciding what's anti-Semitism or not. The, in the Hasidic world, there was tons of that. And, uh, and there's one story that's told where uh, Rabbi Nussin of Breslov, who was the leader of the Breslov community in the 1830s, um, was being marched away by the police and the other Hasidim from the competing group were throwing eggs at him and, you know, and, and yelling names at him. And the other Breslov uh, uh, young people were getting really angry and wanted to fight. And he said to them, he called out um, Lesson 6. Now Lesson 6, it's like a playbook uh, from, uh, you know, in, a, in a football game. Lesson 6 in Rabbi Nachman's teachings is a lesson about cultivating inner dignity. <coughs> inner dignity. That you have such inner dignity that you actually don't even really need to respond to that. Or you don't certainly need to be reactive to it and, and throw a punch. But you can be thoughtful, you can pray, you can, uh, and you, you can then think about what your response is going to be. And he was calling that out to his Hasidim, not to like get all angry and get into a fight, but to think about it. And, um, and, and when we have that kind of inner dignity, that gives us a spaciousness to be able to respond this way. A couple other things, then, then I'll wrap up and we'll have some discussion. Um, the last midah there is, uh, in the book is what we call bitachon, or trust. And if we turn to that on our, in the source sheet, That's eight, source eight. And here Jeremiah says, bottom, bottom of page five, source eight. Two evils have my people committed. They have forsaken me, a freshwater spring, or a makor mayim chaim, to hew themselves cisterns, what are called orot, cracked cisterns that hold no water. So um, God is being compared here to a freshwater spring. And instead, a freshwater spring is always renewing itself. And instead of that, what the people uh, did was they, gave, made, they made themselves a, uh, a container that would hold the water. Now, maybe they could take it wherever they wanted, uh, but a container breaks and the water pulls out and there's nothing left. So that's how, that's how Jeremiah is, you know, what Jeremiah is comparing to God. And in the next piece, Jeremiah then, later on, relates water to trust. And he says... Cursed is the person who trusts solely in people and makes his flesh his source of strength and turns away from God. He will be like a tree planted in the desert and will not see when good comes. He will inhabit the parched places of the desert, a salty, uninhabited land. Blessed is the person who trusts in God and whose hope God is, for he shall be like a tree planted by the waters and that spreads out its roots by the river and shall not see when the heat comes. But its leaf shall be green and shall not be anxious in the year of drought, nor shall it cease from yielding fruit. So obviously water in a desert people, like the Jewish people were in the Torah written in, you know, in the Middle East, in Israel, a desert place, water is a main source of sustenance. And trust is, you're, you're, it's like you have trust. If someone who has trust in God is like a tree that's planted by water, that its source is always going to be there. Or the, mayim, the bear mayim chayim, the, the living spring. A living spring never runs out of order. It keeps coming, keeps coming. The source of nourishment is always there. That's an essential aspect of bitachon, of trust. That Not that everything is going to work out the way we want it, but that I know my nourishment, my source of nourishment is there. And I'm going to continually be able to have nourishment, even when things aren't working out the way I want them to. Look, I think that, that someone asked me the other night in a talk, what midah, what soul trade is most important to me at this time, dealing with what's happening in this country, and I said this one. I said it was, it was trust, it was bitachon. Uh, because I had to know that even though things did not go the way I wanted, um, and I'm pretty scared about things, that 
I'm connected to a source that is going to give me and us the strength and the ability to keep renewing and keep finding something new and that that source is always there and it's not over because certain policies are going to be, you know, happen or other things are going to happen. And I'm finding that to be personally a very, very important uh, trait to keep cultivating at this point. Um, okay, I want to give you a couple, I want to just, a couple practices for you to think about of how you could take this into uh, any kind of um, projects or, or, or what you're going to be doing in this coming period of time. Um, the first has to do with uh, hineni, or the, uh, the uh, we're talking about humility. So I want you to think for a minute right now, how are you being called? I asked this before, but now I want you to really think about it, not rhetorically. How are you being called right now? What comfort or plans do you need to put aside to respond to this call? This could be as simple as contacting someone who might be feeling very scared right now. It could be reaching out to people who voted differently from you. I don't know. But think for a minute for yourself. How do you feel you're being called in this situation? And what might you need to put aside to respond to this call? Let me give you a little quiet just to think about that for yourself. Don't, don't, don't answer yet. I want to give people quiet. Don't answer. You know, actually, I want you to keep that to yourself. Just keep, it, keep that to yourself right now. Uh, that's for you, and you can talk about it with people. The second practice I want to give you is based on the, uh, the issue of anger and forbearance, what we call salvanut. And uh, the 16th century Kabbalist, right, Moshe Cordovero, advocates that we should practice this salvanut. Salvanut means, that in Hebrew, uh, to suffer or bear something. Uh, forbearance, just like God does. God's abundance flows to us without stop even when humans violate God's will, right? So again, from a mystical perspective, the reason we're even here, I'm able to talk, we're alive, we're here, is because there's a constant flow of life energy coming into the world. And God could stop that. God could turn the faucet off at any time. Uh, but God doesn't. Even when we're using that life energy to do things that may be unpleasing to God, like maybe we speak gossip, maybe we hurt other people, maybe we do all kinds of things we can do. There might be things that God doesn't like. That, that energy, that flow, keeps coming down to us. Um, so, Rabbi Moshe Cordovera says that we need to cultivate that as well. Uh, even when people are um, violating our will and doing something against us, we need to cultivate in ourselves the ability to have our goodness keep flowing to other people. All right, so how do we do this? The first step is to connect to a sense of abundance. Because God is an abundant flow of energy. So, and we're not. You know, we're finite. So how do we keep our good flowing when, we, when someone's you know, violating our will, when we're like angry at them or that? How do we keep that good flowing? Uh, we have to really check in and really notice the abundance that may be in our life and really try to connect to that place. Um, and then we really try to let our good flow to them. I can give you an example of this from, uh, it's not a social justice example, but uh, uh, my first year teaching high school, I was working in a uh, uh, ninth grade class, and there were a bunch of boys in the back of the room, and they were uh, um, messing around with something in the back of the room, and I said, it's time to start, guys, sit down. <coughs> they didn't listen, so I said it again, time to sit down. A couple of them sat down. Time to sit down. 
The rest sat there. One guy is still standing. The other one sat down. And so now I'm in this situation, which is, not, is very unenviable, and happens to first-year teachers, where I've got a group of 25 teenagers looking at me, and a defiant teenager in the back, and what do I want to do? So I'm in a showdown. And uh, a skilled teacher would never get in that situation. But uh, it was my first year. And I was so angry. I could feel myself boiling. The blood was coming up. I, I, was, I was just getting ready to let loose and really yell at him. And I did that a few times. And I'm, I'm a very patient guy for the most part. But that year, my first year of teaching, I yelled, I screamed probably three or four times in class at the kids. And uh, I was about to do it again. And it was going to feel so good. Um, and, I, and then I had this teaching. I had Ryan Moshe Cordovera's teaching in my head that I will keep my goodness flowing to you. I will keep my goodness flowing to you. I'll keep my goodness flowing to you. And it worked. I was able to kind of bring the blood down. I was able to say to him in a very firm voice, Daniel, you need to sit down. And there was something about the quality of my voice and the fact that my goodness was flowing to him that he sat down and we moved on. And we ended up having a nice relationship. Um, the key here is connection. That what happens in anger is that... Um, it's very hard to really rage at someone that you feel connected to. In that moment, usually there's a, there's a moment of disconnect that happens in that moment. Now, we often get angry at the people we're most connected to, right? Whether it's our kids, our parents, our partners. But in that moment of anger, there's a disconnect. <clears throat> we see a story in, uh, in, in Exodus where God is, um, it's after the golden calf. And God is very frustrated with the people and says to Moses, look at your people, look what they're doing. Leave me now so my wrath can burn at them and I will destroy them and I'll make a view of people out of them. Does Moses leave? No. Moses' move at that point, Moses says to God, God, this is your people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, you've promised them this land. And the Egyptians are going to say you weren't strong enough to do it. So Moses is pulling out all these arguments to keep God connected to the people. Um, I think the teaching there is that the, the rage, a way to overcome it, is to maintain the connection. And so this practice from Moshe Cordovero is about maintaining connection when we're feeling the pull to cut it off, to cut that flow of goodness off. And so that's the practice I want to offer you to try right now and think about who you might want to do this with. Uh, and this can be someone, again, this can be someone kind of on your team or someone who... Uh, that, you know, you really feel like, yes, you're basically like thinking the same way about this political situation, but they get on your nerves somehow or they're, you know, it, it's, it's tough to like kind of stay working ally with them. Um, you could practice this. I'm going to let my good, keep my good flowing to you. Or if you want to go even a little further and, and try it out, try someone who really is on a different side politically than you. And can you do it there? Can you let your goodness flow also to that person? Okay, so think for a minute. Uh, who you might want to practice this with. Okay. And so my I, um, challenge to you is to go out this week and, uh, and, and, and try this out. Try it out with someone. I'm going to keep my goodness flowing to you. That's the mantra. I'm going to keep my goodness flowing to you. Not to every single person, but choose one person uh, that really gets on your nerves and try to, and try to do that practice with them and stay connected. Um, so this is our challenge with as, uh, you know, is to increase our spaciousness, especially as we're leaning into a very challenging time right now where the impulse might be to tighten up 
And we have to fight. We're going to need to fight. But how do we fight in a way that really keeps our hearts open? I want to close with two uh, ideas, and then if there's questions, we can do that. Um, the first idea is one about despair. And this is something, uh, again, teaching Rabbi Nachman of Breslev. He says that there's no such thing as, as despair at all in the world. How is that? That there's also another teaching Rabbi Nachman says that one should, uh, it's a great mitzvah to be happy always. Now, he doesn't mean that you should always be like a smiley face and it's always happy. What he means is that there are times that you're going to have a broken heart and you're going to be really in pain. And many of us are feeling that these days. That's okay. That's real. You have to be able to feel that. But don't let that slip into depression. Don't let it slip into despair. Because if you have a belief in God, that there's a God that makes change always possible and that change is always happening and this divine abundance is flowing constantly into the world and everything is connected, even though you can't see it and it seems very far away, but you have a belief that that's there, then that's a reason for great joy. That's a reason for great joy because things can always change. And, you know, we're hearing people talk about that from the political realm now. You know, between 2004 and 2008, a lot changed. Between 2016 and 2020, a lot's going to change. Things are always changing. And on a spiritual realm, constantly, God is renewing the world constantly. And we're constantly moving. So that's a source of great joy and a reason for no despair. And the last thing is something from Rabbi Shlomo Kalbach. Tonight, I think, is Rabbi Shlomo Kalbach's yard site. And was it yesterday or tonight? I can't remember. But we're right around it. Rabbi Shlomo Kalbach's yard site. And one of his teachings was that there's nothing, there's no heart bigger than a broken heart. And the idea with a broken heart, there's a teaching that says, um, why did uh, we say, uh, uh, why do we say put these words on your heart and not put these words in your heart? You put them on the heart? Because sometimes things have to sit there and wait till the heart breaks open so they could get in. And so cultivating a broken heart, and I know many, many, many people are broken hearted right now, is actually a spiritual practice where kind of the bigger the bigger the heart comes from a broken heart. And it's really only through having a broken heart that we can hold ourselves, other people, and God and be able to bring those all together. And I think that's really the spiritual task that we need to be doing right now to be able to lean into the fights we have coming up but not close our hearts. So I'll stop there. Uh, we have about 10 minutes, 8 minutes uh, for any questions, discussion, or uh, any pieces on this you want to talk about or anything else you want to bring up. Anything about the practices or the, the you know, anything. Can you tell us a little bit about your, your, your trips to Africa? <laughs> uh, sure. I had a couple trips to Africa, but one was, uh, one was this one with the American Jewish World Service. Uh, they had a rabbinic delegation. They, they take them. I know Shmoy's done a lot of work with them, too to see different uh, uh, projects going on. So this was one to Ghana to see this amazing organization and what they were doing and support them. Um, I had another trip uh, with the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee um, back after the Rwandan genocide in, 2000, uh, in 1994, where we were building a refugee camp uh, <clears throat> for Rwandan refugees. And that was, that was a very powerful experience in that um, I got to work with a group of primarily Israelis, who uh, mainly kibbutznik Israelis, who uh, <clears throat> were able to build a base camp out in the forest area where we were building the refugee camp. We were working with um, 
uh, Irish team, Japanese team, a German team, and then local uh, people from, uh, from the Congo who we would hire to work with us. And, uh, but we were the only team that was staying out in the field because these guys knew how to build a camp that had a generator and a hot water shower and a kitchen and we would cook the meals for everyone and have these big meals, I, I, you know, and people would come out to them. So that was, a, that was a powerful experience in an international community, really trying to do something together. And for me, that was actually a very early kind of transformative experience in that one night out there, we were uh, again out in this, this forest area and we had the, uh, I think the Irish and the Japanese team, maybe the Irish team was over and it was Friday night dinner and they'd asked me to say Kiddush because I was the only religious guy who was there. So I was saying the Kiddush, the Friday night uh, blessing on the, on the wine. And I had an epiphany at that moment of uh, being in the forest in Africa, building a refugee camp, saying Kiddush on the wine, said to me that these are not separate worlds. That this world of trying to help refugees and, and help people who have been through a genocide and praising God in a very particular Jewish ritual go together. And that these parts of the world really go together. And this spirituality and this work of making the world a better place are really one and the same and need to be together. So that, that, that experience actually was a real, you know, set me on my path that I think this book really came out of. So thanks for asking. Yeah. Good. Why don't we, uh, yeah, why don't we wrap it up? Okay, Rabbi Kathy, thank you so much. Welcome. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you've just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to Valley Beit Midrash to support the expansion of meaningful Jewish education. Thank you so much for listening.